AVXL episode 190 was recorded on August 14th, 2022. Let's talk some more about the best Blu-ray players you can buy, Monolith's new home theater speaker kit, and the amp you're going to need to drive them, floor-rising projection screens, some more thoughts on color saturation, and quite a bit more, including a big old pile of viewer questions. Don't forget, email ask at AVXL if you got a question for us. And thank you, thank you, seriously, thank you to everyone that supports us at patreon.com slash AVXL. Your monthly contributions make this podcast possible. Testing, one, two, three. All right, I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Welp Navy Excel, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear, no matter what your budget is. I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. I got to give a quick shout out to uh, Bluetooth headphones on my Apple TV. Of course, this works for Roku and a lot of AVRs too, but I got to finish watching uh, season six of Peaky Blinders after my children were asleep without scaring the crap out of them with delightful music and raging Birmingham, uh, well, violence. <laughs> <laughs> was this just general support uh that's available in an apple tv where you can use pretty much any, yeah. any pair of bluetooth headphones i i haven't found a pair of not that i own that many sets of bluetooth headphones but uh every type of bluetooth headphone or or earbuds i've tried to uh, attach to them i've been able to nice. you basically just you know put your gear in uh, linking mode and uh and then you select them on the apple tv yeah it's pretty slick actually does it require a phone in the loop the way like you'd have to use, say, nope. Roku in particular would make you probably use their app and then you could link your headphones to the app on the on the mobile device. Yeah. But anyway, right. That's cool. I really appreciate it when things have built in Bluetooth. Yeah. I mean, I'm also a big fan of Roku's remote control with a headphone jack on it. But <laughs> yes. um, it's 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 sometimes nice people sit there without having a cable to your headphones. So. It's a thought. If you haven't played around with it, it's there for you. Check the manual for your Apple TV, Roku, AVR, or your television. You never know where Bluetooth is lurking in the darkness waiting to attack. Truly. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> it's hiding there somewhere. Oh, my goodness. You found a bizarre subreddit. I did. I found one that it made me smile. And the subreddit is slash r slash TV too high. You may uh, you may suspect what this is about, but it's effectively people showing off setups or configurations with televisions that are mounted rather high up on the wall or just high within the viewing position, so to speak, where you would definitely mm -hmm. have to look up. I find that some of it's pretty absurd. Some of it seems to be people just questioning if what they did is just completely unacceptable or is it something that, you know, hey, it works for the given situation. Either way, it's worth a look. At least most of these screens I'm seeing that are mounted way up on the wall or in whatever configuration that puts it way up in the air are at least angled downwards. And there are definitely mm. some good examples of TV setups in this scenario to avoid. But if you're ever wondering, like, what's the limit in terms of how far up on the wall can you mount that TV? Or is it OK to mount a, say, a TV over a fireplace? This is the place for you. Uh, you could check it out. You could see what other people have done and either take solace or poke fun at or just smile. It's a good lighthearted, <laughs> a good lighthearted subreddit. <laughs> it's nice when you have the lighthearted tweaking of, of people's design decisions. We'll just call it that. Yeah. Design decisions. I have a few friends that do for whatever reason. It was the most convenient place to put it. Uh, in terms of mounting a TV, but if, if in my opinion, it's still up a little too high. And that would be any scenario really where you have to almost force yourself to look up in order to right. comfortably view it. And that's no problem for something you're going to glance at once in a while. But if it's going to be a like a long-term viewing session, say for a movie or a TV show, it soon becomes pretty less than ideal. Suddenly you realize, hey, wouldn't this be nice if it was just at eye level? <laughs> but sometimes that's not possible. And this is the subreddit for you. TV too high. Too high. <laughs> In the good old Reddit. Oh, my goodness. The uh... Sorry, I'm thinking about this place I was recently. And they had a very large fireplace, the very large TV above the fireplace. And, uh, and you just had to stare up with the back of your head sitting on the back of your neck. Because there's no other way to see the screen. I've been there. I read a book. It's like sitting too close book. at the movie theater, in a sense. Uh, 
It's yeah. not in ideal position. Speaking of not being in ideal position, um, let's talk about HBO Max and Discovery Plus. Uh, okay, so 2023-ish, Discovery Plus and HBO Max are going to be one, maybe, kind of. It's early to tell. Uh, in case you haven't followed up on this, Discovery bought Warner Media from AT&T, creating Warner Brothers Discovery. Uh, full disclosure, uh, I have had personal conversations, not deep ones, not long ones, and not more than a couple times with David Saslov, the Warner Brothers Discovery chief. He was, you know, uh, popped in a couple times during the process of Revision 3 being acquired by Discovery, which, you know, was where Rob and I started uh, HT Nation at Revision 3. He is a, one of the smartest human beings I've ever been in a room with and a really spectacular businessman, i.e. he's very good at making money and he aims on combining the rich legacies that's a quote of warner brothers and discovery and wants to quote bring hbo max and discovery plus unquote into a single offering i am not a huge fan of this it may turn out to be amazing but look let me be honest with you hbo max is pretty epic as it is especially given the extraordinary just amazing back catalog uh, and that they've given you access to new Warner Brothers movies 45 days after release. Right. So some annoying things have already happened, uh, like a half dozen Max Originals movies have disappeared, including Moonshot, uh, the Anne Hathaway Witches remake, Seth Rogen's American Pickle, uh, and of course a bunch of TV shows from Cartoon Network and Adult Swim are gone. Some uh, stuff from TNT and uh, TBS like Snowpiercer and The Last OG. And people were like, is this about the merger? What's going on? My favorite show's missing. I can't watch it over and over again. And HBO Max Help tweeted that, well, basically somebody was like, hey, where's this show my wife loves? And HBO Max Help on Twitter responded, thanks for your interest in HBO Max content. If we work to bring together HBO Max and Discovery Plus, we're making some changes to our services. Part of that process includes the removal of select content. Thanks. Uh-oh. Yeah. So, and part of that, you know, one of the, I don't know if it was, you know, Variety or someplace else basically pointed out, it would not be particularly unusual for them to take underperforming content and, you know, farm it out, uh, put it someplace, you know, make a deal for it, get somebody else to defray some of that production cost. True. One of the crazier things is the, well, it was a $75 million movie. Then because of COVID, it kind of ballooned to a $90 million movie. We're talking about Batgirl, the one with Leslie Grace's Barbara Gordon, a.k.a. Batgirl, J.K. Simmons doing the Commissioner Gordon thing. Brendan Fraser was going to be Firefly, the villain. And holy cow, Michael Keaton coming back as the Batman. Um, canceled, apparently, says Variety, as a tax write-off. Because they felt it wasn't big enough to kind of compete on that Marvel level, and it wasn't small enough, or it was too expensive for the size to be debuted in HBO Max. But in any case, apparently it's all just going to go away. The other thing that may be going away is a source inside presumably HBO Max told Decider.com that Warner Brothers movies are not going to be guaranteed that 45-day uh, uh, well, basically, they're, so right now, new Warner Brothers movies, 45 days after their first theatrical release, they are guaranteed to arrive on HBO Max. Um, amongst other things, Maverick uh, and, oh my goodness, the new Brad Pitt film. I should know this. Brad Pitt, Train, movie. That would be Bullet Train because I have the slowest brain in St. Louis today. Um, but, you know, basically... Theater theatrical releases are making money again, so you know again uh, this is these are for profit companies, so they're probably going to make that guarantee to put stuff on HBO Max after forty five days. That's probably going away. Um, yeah, which as home theater enthusiasts, I find disappointing, but I get the financial motivation to stop that because if you have a successful movie, it's really stupid to suddenly drop it onto a streaming service for half the cost of a single ticket in a decent theater for a month and all the rest of your contents. Exactly. Um, you know, to Zaslav's credit, apparently he did kind of a listening tour and Variety pointed out that uh, creatives, actors, actresses, writers, directors, um, you know, that they were kind of pissed about stuff going so quickly or going straight to HBO Max. Uh, you know, if you want to know why, do some searching on Scarlett Johansson's uh, lawsuit against Disney over the whole release schedule of Black Widow, right? They stand to lose astonishing amounts of money. Again, this is all for profit. 
So we'll see what HBO Max becomes. Um, you know, I'm hoping it doesn't mutate into a sad little tab inside of Discovery Plus. I don't think that'll happen, but I've been desperately and amazingly wrong before. But we'll see how it goes. And hey, if nothing else, HBO Max was oh so awesome for a glimmer of time <laughs> while it lasted. Yeah, maybe one day we'll have yeah. just one source for all video. <laughs> that seems to be the way uh, it'll eventually go. And you'll pay by the bit. What was it like in Demolition With Man? Blood. Every restaurant is Taco Bell. <laughs> anyway. Oh, my goodness. I had a quick follow-up for the uh, last episode's discussion about the best Blu-ray player. And you had mentioned the Panasonic UB420 4K disc player. I came across a scenario where that player would have been handy. In particular, that Panasonic provides separate decoding options for Dolby and DTS. Independently, uh, it's handy if you have audio equipment that, say, isn't compatible with one particular format or the other. Mm. And in this case, I was dealing with my Sony X700 4K disc player, and it has but a single control for this function. Either everything will be bitstream outputted or everything can be converted right. to PCM for compatibility and then output as well. There can be only one. <laughs> exactly. You, you get one or the other. But uh, yeah, forget you if you're dealing with two different formats uh, in any given point in your lifetime with the product. Anyway, right. I was watching the 4K Blu-ray edition of Interstellar. And its main English audio track is DTS HD Master Audio with no other options. I was surprised to see that DTS HD bitstream pass-through has all but gone extinct on eARC-enabled TVs. And I was a little further surprised to note that my LG C9 OLED actually supported this function, and it was apparently the last generation of the LG OLEDs to actually do that. Hmm. This all leads up to the fact that it turns out my soundbar is not compatible with DTS HD audio. So while I've got this Blu-ray player hooked up with bitstream output of this DTS HD master audio track, it's flowing out of the player, through my TV, out its eARC port. And when it reaches oh, wow. the soundbar, I got a, a nice horrible sound of screeching and hissing that told me something wasn't compatible. <laughs> it became then a, a matter of figuring out what can I do then to get around this quirk in the sound setup and I could go into the player where I discovered that my beloved Sony disc player gave me an all or nothing option where my player can convert everything to PCM output. But I would right. have preferred something like the Panasonic where it's like, you know, okay, for those DTS HD master audio tracks, we'll convert just that to PCM audio uh, for my say Dolby Atmos that will just get passed through cleanly right to my supported soundbar device and I'm good to go. It's also just a good reminder that AVRs have wonderful compatibility with a wide variety of audio formats, and I would not have run into this issue had I an actual AVR that I plugged my disc player into. It would have just handled that decoding natively, and the TV would have gotten its picture, and I would have been a happy camper, so to speak. I also found it interesting that even within eARC, and even with sampling a particular, say, a, a lossless audio format like DTS HD or Dolby Atmos in certain cases, uh, multi-channel PCM, if you want to keep it as a multi-channel track, that also requires eARC. There's typically more bandwidth there than you're going to get through a standard ARC setup. Hmm. There are some real-world examples of where it's really nice to have right. separation for the different audio formats in terms of where or when you need to convert it to PCM output for compatibility. And that is something that that UB420 disc player from Panasonic actually does. It would have been nice because suddenly it's like, you know, for the rest of my movies that have that Dolby Atmos track that is compatible with all my gear, I then have to go back into my Sony disc player, re-enable bitstream output. <laughs> and then if I come across that odd track, like in the case of Interstellar in 4K, uh, right. then I have to switch it back to PCM conversion and output that way. It was just a, an interesting thing that popped up over the last week or two. Yeah. Just shows you how things change and condense. And even within the available audio formats out there, there is that too. It's also worth pointing out before somebody emails askadvxl.com that, hey, just buy a new soundbar. Um, there oh, are hell some no. $300,000, $500,000 plus soundbars out there. So. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm currently I'm rolling with a Sonos Arc, and that is about a seven eight hundred dollar soundbar, and I have no desire to swap yeah. that out anytime soon. So, and, and that's not even including, say, the subwoofer to go with that, 
in addition to some surround channels as well. Right. I have an investment and that's not changing. But now I'm kind of curious to see how many other 4K HDR movies are out there that are actually done up with just DTS HD master audio and no other track support, at least in terms of English audio output. The right. rest of the foreign language tracks on that disc were available in Dolby. Right. I was enjoying that, of course, but that's not what I was looking for. Uh, I was looking for basically just being able to pass through that DTS HD master audio track straight to the soundbar. But no, no bueno. Conversion for me. And kind of in a manual flip-flop toggle with my Sony player compared to something like the UB420. Anyway. There you have it. <laughs> Quick note, uh... We mentioned that Netflix was looking to add an ad-supported tier in 2023. Uh, it looks like Disney Plus will have an ad-supported $8 a month tier starting December 8th this year. If you're on the I will watch ads to pay less for my streaming services, that will be an option for you. Keep an eye out on those. As things continue to shuffle in the world of streaming services. Yeah. Interesting product I wasn't really expected came out of uh, Monolith. That's Monoprice's premium audio lineup. They do a lot of home theater stuff. They've actually done some really good headphones and speakers. The M518HT THX certified 5.1 home theater speaker system. So this is not a home theater in a box, right? It's a set of speakers and a subwoofer. You're going to need an AVR to power this rig, this set. These are really compact. All five of the speakers are 6 inches wide by 6.3 inches high by 5.9 inches deep. That's 153 by 160 by 150 millimeters if you're outside of the U.S. or if you think in millimeters. Very small, and they pack a 4.5 inch concentric driver. So you got a 4.5 inch mid with a 20 millimeter silk dome tweeter and a quote optimized waveguide. One would hope it's optimized. And then along with those five speakers, you get an 8 inch 150 watt subwoofer. You know, I mentioned these are very, very small speakers, right? Essentially six by six by six inches. The trade-off for the Twi size is similar to what we've seen, for example, from ELAC when they've done some really powerful low extension. They are harder to drive. Now, looking at the specs, uh, these are going to be particularly difficult to drive for a lot of uh, AVRs. These are 4-ohm speakers, and the sensitivity is about 81 dB. Now, with the ELACs, people start whining because they're like 85 or 86 dB. So these are going to take a little bit of oomph if you want to listen to home theater at high levels. The specs say, or they basically say they're flat down to 80 hertz. I thought it was interesting that the chart on Monoprice's webpage had, uh, they showed a chart essentially from 80 hertz to 1,000 or 2,000 hertz. And from 80 to 1,000 hertz, they were pretty flat, right? Um, but the, the chart basically only goes up to 2,000 hertz, and it kicks up like 5 dB between 1,500 and 2,000 hertz. So that I thought was odd, or I'm looking at the chart wrong, uh, which is also entirely possible. But it's like 10 hertz, 100 hertz, 1,000 hertz, and then the chart ends. Huh. So It doesn't seem like yeah. it would include much of what the subwoofer's doing. Am I wrong? Well, no, I think they literally just have the frequency response for the satellites. Ah, uh, got it. Literally for only about a, you know, 1,500, 2,000 hertz, right? Because right. when we look at these charts, they usually go from 10 hertz to 20,000 hertz. So right. uh, I'm going to reach out to, to Monoprice to ask a little bit more about that to the crew over there. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was odd to look at that. They claim that the satellite speakers run 80 hertz to 20,000 hertz, plus or minus 3 dB in the specs. Oh. So maybe they just did the chart to show how incredibly flat it is between 80 and 100 or 80 and 1,000 hertz which is incredibly flat, um, you know, looking at that chart. That 8-inch sub should also be able to keep some of the good detail in the lower frequencies, yeah. uh, at least audible, 80 yeah. hertz on up for the rest of the system. It, it should be adequate yeah. for what that is. and But it would be nice to see some numbers on it uh, in addition to what they're showing, well, some of the information well, they're Well, they basically the, say, you know, it's 35 to 200 hertz. Okay. Basically, the THX EQ is 35 to 200 hertz. Uh, Got it. And then they have, like two different EQ settings that go down to either 30 or 24 hertz. The crew at Monolith, they've, they've made some pretty serious subwoofers and they usually don't cheap out on them. So I'm, I'm, I, I have high hopes for this. But look, if you get at 80 hertz, you're going to miss a lot of music or, or movie on those satellites. But if you got them down well below 40 and down into, you know, down towards 30 hertz, the subwoofer's doing its job and, and you should be pretty pleased with that situation. Cool. 
Yeah. So, you know, they, they do like keyhole mounting slots. If you don't want to set them on furniture, that basically means you hang them on a, a properly selected uh, mounting system, what many people might call a screw. Uh, do yourself a favor and don't destroy your $800 speaker set because you used a cheap drywall screw instead of a proper mounting screw. Uh, five-way binding posts. One write-up reports he's having spring-loaded wire terminals, not five-way binding posts. I'm not a, you know, particularly fussed either way as long as I can get a decent 12-gauge cable into whatever is on the back of the speaker. Monolith uh, products generally come with a pretty serious warranty. You get a five-year warranty, a 30-day money-back guarantee. And, and if I didn't mention it, this is $800 for five speakers and a subwoofer, which is kind of a bargain uh, when you're looking at decent performance out of a set of home theater speakers. So props to the crew at Monolith and Monoprice for putting this together. This got me thinking, right? So what do you pair AVR-wise with these? Because when you look at the entry-level AVR from Denon, for example, it's not rated to drive 4-ohm speakers. This is a drum audio Holix has been beating on for years, but I was looking for something, like I said, that would drive these Monolith M518HT speakers. And when you start looking at AVRs, and this is the drum that Audioholics has been beating on, that the way AVR manufacturers report the power in the amps inside their AVRs kind of sucks, right? You generally get 8-ohm specs. There are lots of places that will report, particularly looking at Yamaha and Denon AVR, which I think are the, the, the two most likely brands for the vast majority of our audience to purchase, uh, you know, the 6-ohm specs are there, 8-ohm specs are there. When you get to 4-ohm numbers, with Denon, it generally says, you know, for example, the, the, the least expensive, the entry-level AVR from Denon basically says this, the speakers are for 6 to 16 ohms, right? And then as you get into, as you spend more money on Denon AVRs, they basically say you can go from 4-ohms to 16 ohms. Um, when you get into measurements, I was laughing, right? Um Yamaha, as a, for a particular AVR I was looking at, they had a, a number, 150 watts for one speaker driven at 1 kilohertz to 0.9% THD on either the left or right channel. All the other specs, the 6 and 8 ohm ones that they publish, say they're for front, left, right, center, surround, left, right, surround, back, left, right. So I'm like, hmm, <laughs> you know, do it. maybe a typo, you know, but, maybe um, not very you know, well. and that... <laughs> that same AVR, when they talk about sort of the maximum power for this uh, for this amplifier, is at 10% THD. This is bad. Like, I, I can deal with 1%. I can probably not get too fussed at 2%, but 10% THD is completely audible and irritating as hell. The amps in that same AVR at 10% THD at 160 watts on a single, remember that's a single 6-ohm speaker driven at 1 kilohertz. That's one speaker driven at one frequency. There's not a lot of power to feed AVRs. This is one of the things that, that uh, Gene Salahala and the rest of the crew at the Audioholics has, has beaten on, right? Because you're like, you know, you probably don't use all 5, 7, 11, or 13 channels of your AVR simultaneously at max volume. However, if you have a car crash, an explosion, a rocking taking off, whatever it is, you can draw a metric ton of power out of that amplifier. And if you don't have the power supply you need to drive all those amps, you will run into problems. This is one of the reasons why there are very specific amplifier. Uh, basically, there's there's a NFTC number for rating amplifier power because people get really, really creative on how they do this. Um, my particular favorite at this at the moment, and it's very honest, right? Yamaha says, to measure dynamic power, an amplifier is fed a 1000 hertz signal for 20 milliseconds then is allowed to rest for 480 milliseconds. The amplifier volume control is turned up until the amp reaches the clipping point. At that point, the amp has reached its instantaneous peak or dynamic power output. So 20 milliseconds, 480 milliseconds of rest, which is not how home theater soundtracks or music work in the real world. I don't spend a lot of time listening to 20 millisecond bursts of, of <laughs> noise, even at one kilohertz. Um, this is why continuous RMS numbers are so much lower than the dynamic power numbers. You know, are there cases where companies make, you know, report dynamic power numbers that are ridiculous, but actually that the amplifier could do? Absolutely. I'm not going to get into a list of that right now. You know, this isn't a big deal with the vast majority of 8-ohm speakers that are fairly easy to drive. 
right? If you have speakers that are going to suck down a fair amount of power, especially if you want to get closer to reference levels in big rooms, i.e. I, I want my car crashes to have impact, uh, you could run into problems. You can cause power issues in your amp, uh, and you also don't want your teenager to be down there blasting a movie or blasting a soundtrack and the distortion trashing the drivers in your speakers. And it's, you know, it's interesting because a lot of, in, in Denon and Yamaha, uh, are certainly not alone in this, but it's really frustrating when you're looking at numbers and it's like, oh, 150 watts, stereo, 8 ohms, 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz with 0.05% THD, I get 150 watts stereo. And, you know, if I go to 6 ohm speakers, I get 190 watts, but it's not at 0.05% THD, it's at 0.7% DHD. And, you know, if it'll even drive 4 ohms, you know, the wattage gets bigger, but the distortion goes up. So this is a thing I will not beat on this particular horse any longer, but make sure to dig into the specs. Oh, and by the way, almost all of these specs I had to dig into the manuals to find because they don't put them anywhere on the websites for the products themselves. It's a little frustrating. That's a good point. It should be easier for consumers to make these comparisons. Yeah. And it's good to hear people like you and the folks over at Audioholics just uh, reiterating, hey, it would be great yeah. if we could come up with some general standards that people can glance at to know if this will work or not for the well. particular <laughs> use case. But otherwise, hey, you know. I'm going to wait until you get it in your hands or Audioholics gets <laughs> it in their hands and puts it through its paces. I'm not going to be a day one adopter for these. But anyway. Well, I see it's, you know, the, the trick is to be aware, you know, if you have a fairly inexpensive entry level AVR, uh, you might want to be gentle with the volume control or start thinking about an upgrade if you want to buy a set of speakers that are 81 dB, you know, efficiency and four ohms. That means they want all of the power to get you to a serious volume. Just a thought. Oh, yeah. Hey, I was perusing the good folks over at elite screens and they had a section of their electric floor rising screens and in in that section they had actually quite a few new models and i always think of either a fixed mounted or a retractable projection screen that hangs from the ceiling or the wall well this is another option to consider if your setup can use it and you might require it these literally can either set on the ground or you could even put them say on a piece of uh, a low furniture, like a small cabinet or a low cabinet, and then have that screen come up rather than, uh, you know, like I said, hang directly on the wall 24-7 or a retractable setup that drops down. Many of these designs are apparently for ultra short throw or short throw projection setups as they mm. are ambient light rejecting designs. Uh, these are all tabbed tensioned in, in addition, uh, providing, you know, a nice flat screen over the longevity of the product. But literally, yeah, they can rise up out of the ground in a sense or from that direction as well. If if perhaps a wall mounted or a down retracting screen or a screen that comes scrolling down isn't what you're looking for. I doubt any of these are going to be long enough, quote unquote, to where you could put it, say, behind right. a couch in a really tall room and have enough material to where it would actually clear something like a couch or something like that. I don't think that's what you're looking at here. And I would be also curious to see if you are doing like a complete remodel, uh, if you could actually put this into the floor itself and have it really kind of disappear. I don't think that's what these are as well, but uh, if it's going to be visible and you'd rather have it just scroll down and get out of the way when not in use, uh, these could be the option you're looking for. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes, but floor rising projection screens. I'm sure there's more companies than just Elite <laughs> doing this, but... They had a nice new section on their website, and I was just uh, admiring it. And clearly, some of these are meant to be seen, like you will see the case when it is uh, retracted or not, as they offer the case for the screen itself in different colors, like black or white. So either way, they generally have made some uh, terrific products that I've experienced yeah. personally. I've had never really had a problem with anything they sell. I've owned two other projection oh, screens. Excellent. And Doctors. this is just something right different. there now. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> they do good stuff. You know, I will say one of the most painful things I've observed, we have a, a small black cat that we adopted uh, a few months ago. Ew. And the cat figured out how to get on the bookshelves. And I'm watching a movie at one point, And this cat head comes out from behind the side of the screen and starts biting 
the edge of the screen. Fortunately, it was the black ribbon on the outside edge of the screen and not the acoustically transparent uh, material itself, but it, it was a little... It was a little heartbreaking. Probably soy plastic that tastes delicious. <laughs> what is it with these? I don't know. I was running into some odd issues looking at different car repairs in particular, and it was all related to mice eating plastic. And I was like, why are they eating the plastic? And it's like, oh, it was soy based. And I was like, what? <laughs> anyway. So annoying. Speaking of projectors, actually, I was looking over on Projector Central, the good folks over there, and Mr. Mark Henninger, man, he did a review, a really good review of the new LG HU 915QB. Uh, this is a 4K ultra Ooh. short throw laser projector. I think you mentioned this a week or two ago. Anyway, if uh, you are interested or considering a, a laser, a bright laser projector in the 5 to 10K range in terms of price tag, this is definitely one to keep on your short list. Uh, the fact that it is a laser-based projector means that it will have really good startup times in terms of how long it takes to become bright and ready. It is just simply a bright projector, and that laser-based system is going to last a good long time. Typically, you're looking at something like 20,000 hours before you even have to think about it uh, over the long term, which is nice compared to most of your lamp-based projectors out there. I had remembered looking at this projector and making the comment that it wasn't a true RGB laser projector in the sense that it had separate diodes for red, blue, and green. Instead, it uses red and blue and then another blue laser diode that goes into a piece of phosphor for the green color that is then extracted and uh, to provide the, the RGB color system you would need to produce the pictures. He had an interesting quote in this review, uh, basically stating that in his opinion and from what he saw using this uh, in a calibrated setting, that sacrifice of a true RGB design does sacrifice that really large color gamut, say from Rec 2020, that is used in hmm. the basis for your HDR10 and Dolby Vision content. Uh, however, it produced a cleaner looking image by avoiding some issues that can be present on these pure RGB laser projectors that he has seen anyway. And overall, he seemed very happy with it, especially at the price point, the given brightness it was able to dump out and its color consistency. There were some quirks with it that I encourage you, if you're thinking about this projector seriously, do give that review a, a look. Uh, he mentioned specifically its need for calibration and some quirks related to its iris control in terms of it uh, can having some uh, distinct changes to the picture if you go around messing with it after calibration. So, but either way, uh, as far as a projector and roughly, I think it's about, I want to say it's about 6,000, six to $7,000 mm -hmm. total. Uh, that would be one I would have on my short list just for the built-in functionality of having an LG projector. Knowing what I know in terms of, hey, I know my calibration software is also compatible with lookup table programming on that thing. So it's going to look fantastic, but it also features... Right more TV-centric functionality like you would have for, as far as built-in apps go. I believe it even has a digital over-the-air tuner, and it uses that magic remote for making just the interface use maybe a little bit easier for you as well. But It's a terrific review. I'll be sure to link that as well over at projectorcentral.com in terms of the, uh, the HU915QB 4K Ultra short throw. Digging it. I'd heard these were coming, and I was like, okay, we'll see, we'll see. But uh, Emotiva just dropped a new set of Airmotive speakers, T3+. Plus. These are the biggest Airmotives yet. They are 50 inches high, 49 and a half technically, uh, $1,900 for a pair. And they pack three 8-inch woofers, two 5 and a quarter inch mid-ranges uh, in an MTM range. But essentially one mid, then the tweeter, uh, then the next mid, and then below that are the woofers. The tweeters is uh, Emotiva's uh, standard, you know, I don't want to denigrate it. It's a nice tweeter, a 32 millimeter Airmotive folded ribbon tweeter. Um, essentially, this is the $1,200 T2 Plus with an extra woofer, an extra mid, and a much larger cabinet. 4 ohm, 91 dB efficient, i.e. it is easier to drive to higher levels, although you will need to throw the power at it. That 4 ohms is going to suck down. And they're talking about plus or minus 3 dB from 29 hertz to 28,000 hertz. Wow. So when you're listening, essentially, again, this is the same speaker as that $1,200 T2 Plus, but it's going to dig 6 hertz lower than the T2 Plus, i.e. you have more extension down low, and it should give you a bit more impact in the uh, sub-frequencies. Uh, you know, it's basically the bass and maybe the upper bass in there. It'd be interesting to see measurements side-by-side -side on the two of these from a clipple or something like that. that um, sounds these nice. These speakers... 
Yeah. Uh, these are not light speakers. You're talking about 85 pounds to the T2's 56.9 pounds. I'm pretty sure that's each speaker, uh, unless I'm reading the specs wrong. They are definitely trying to keep the resonance out of the box. These are thick, well-braced MDF boxes, I would imagine. So props to Emotiva for keeping the... Uh, keeping the fire on under their speaker lineups um you know we're fans of the t2 we're fans of the t2 yeah. plus so the t3 plus is more and down lower so that's pretty impressive if your budget permitted it would you want say like four or five or six or seven of those in terms of a surround system and maybe i, I obviously a different center channel but man it would just be like holy cow plus a couple subs uh i <laughs> It just suddenly I'm thinking of a tower speaker with three eight inch subs, two five and a quarter mids, plus the folded ribbon well, tweeters. And it's like, damn, I would at least want a pair of those up front. That sounds like it would be pretty nice for a, a home date or so. Yeah. And you'd need a nice center channel to match them or things that sound really squirrely as stuff panned from left to center to right or right to center to left. True. Um, you know. The very first Dolby uh, Atmos demo I heard was in one of the rooms at the Dolby headquarters in San Francisco, and they had, like, the five primary speakers, if my memory serves correctly, were five, you know, five, five-and-a-half-foot-tall Focal towers. These were massive speakers. They had, you know, they they also tend to drive things to what I consider inhumane levels, right? The Dolby reference uh, listening levels are significantly higher than I generally want to experience. I'm a little more volume-sensitive than a lot of people. It borders but, on the painful uh, for me. Uh, I agree yeah, with you. I, it's a little much um, when I'm there in their test setups. Yeah, I'm like, or or in their theater. But I'm always looking around, going, "Am I the only one? I'm about to squirm here and pull out some earplugs." And <laughs> I literally, I watched two or three premieres uh, of movies at their theater with earplugs in. A fantastic theater, fantastic sound, fantastic True. screen, but just painfully loud. Yeah, to uh, the point it can literally take you right out of it when it's that way. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm more concerned about my health and well-being suddenly than I am about whatever the hell they're trying to present to me. <laughs> Well, mostly just hurts, but um, bringing it back to Emotiva, though, I, I'll be honest with you, you know, these are these are going to, you know, you'll have less of a need for a subwoofer if you don't have a, you know, if you don't have a subwoofer. I've heard arguments that, well, you'd rather have the ability to move the subwoofer anywhere in the room to maximize uh, the return on your investment. You know what yes. I mean? Because you know, there's, the, I think it was Brent who said to me once, Brent Butterworth said, look, you know, the last place you want your subwoofers is generally where you put, to put the speakers in the perfect spot for stereo or home theater reproduction is generally the worst place to put the boxes that create your lowest frequency. So um, that said, uh, I'm pretty happy with what I get out of the you know left and right front speakers in my home theater, and they are full range with subwoofers built in. But I also have some more subwoofers scattered around the room because I've lost my mind. But that's a discussion for another day. Um, hey, do you remember IKEA's uh, Sono speakers, the the big flat panel boxes that look like well pictures, yeah, picture frames, the artwork style ones. So they finally released some new artwork, and I was actually kind of shocked and impressed. Oh, these um, were the ones was, where they had the the art that was, I want to say, kind of futuristic, and it was like, uh, no. I didn't think it looked well, that's, that great. That was the old ones. Yeah, yeah the old okay. ones looked like trash, I'll be honest with you. They, they looked like something you'd find in a motel in an 80s movie. Exactly. Um, so in this case, so what they have, if you can find them for sale, is three new designs. Um Klimt's The Tree of Life, Van Gogh's Starry Night, and yes, ladies and gentlemen, Da Vinci's Mona Lisa. Holy cow. So, yeah. <laughs> I think the Starry Night one's particularly impressive. <laughs> Do they offer a flat color of any kind? I don't recall. I need to look that up. It's like, are they all you, you, art-based or are any of them? You like... get a dark grayish black screen that comes with the original speaker. Okay, okay. So we so, <laughs> get some options. Yeah. Well, it's got sort of a wireframe dot line drawing that maybe looks like a, you know, unrendered 3D projection the, of a group of hills. That's what I'm thinking of. That was the one I yeah. saw. It's probably better for a lot of people than just having a big black rectangle on the wall. But, uh, you know, I, I've, I've also seen people get creative um, with relatively acoustically transparent fabric. And uh, 
making their own speaker covers, see, that's, or more accurately covering that with something else. That's exactly what I would like to see. Like in particular, maybe yeah. you have your your kids art, and you would give them a give them one of the covers to go ahead and go crazy with, and then you can hang that up as such. These are those Sonos yeah. uh, based speakers, in, in a sense, where you link yeah. them with the rest of a Sonos setup. They partnered with Sonos. I've heard very good things in terms of the output quality on these. They compare, I guess, favorably to something like a Sonos One. And in yeah. terms of if you wanted to use them, say, as as side speakers or as a, you know, for a 2.1 setup or even just a two channel setup, this could be a way yeah. to go. Or, or, of course, you could just use one by itself for, you know, things like books on tape or, you know, general listening. You could do you could do a lot worse yeah. for general listening. I like to have them in pairs. I always laugh because right. uh, ratings has some fin- some fantastic reviews of this. But I always think of buying these in pairs. And they talk about like the stereo, you know, because it basically squashes stereo into mono to pay out of a single speaker. Unless you have two Sono speakers paired as a stereo pair, um, obviously you you lose the sort of you know sound staging or imaging because you don't get a giant room full of a face full of audio. You get a point source of audio. I'd, uh, someday I will explain that in, in accurate technical terms, but essentially you can't do stereo out of a single speaker. So I get, get dinged for that. But if you have two of these speakers in stereo, it's pretty phenomenal. Um, I, I, I've done a lot of listening through Sonos over the years because it's just so easy to access in the house. And, uh, the Sonos one, a pair of those, you could do a lot worse than that for the majority of your listening. Indeed. Um, Indeed. Oh my goodness! Hey, what were the results on the uh, the Value Electronics 2022 TV shootout? Oh yeah, a couple weeks ago, over the weekend, they did uh, 4K TVs on the first day, 8K TVs on the following day, and to jump right to the results, the 2022 Sony A95K has been judged to be the finest flat panel 4K TV you can purchase today. And I will add an asterisk to that that I'll get to in a second. But <laughs> the A95K is based upon that QD OLED technology. And it took first place in all three categories for the 4K shootout. That included a uh, standard dynamic range day mode, a standard dynamic range reference mode, which you can think of as like day and night modes in a sense, as well as an HDR reference mode as well. Uh, I was surprised a little bit by its dominance in that SDR day mode result. Uh, for its apparent brightness, especially in light of the comments I made recently about QD OLED displays. I believe it was on our previous episode where I was questioning how good they could be in a bright room environment. And apparently the color purity alone of something like that QD OLED technology built into the A95K uh, allows those subpixels to just shine apparently. And that's something I'm going to be investigating further in terms of how color purity really does affect your perception of brightness. Now, when I said there was an asterisk uh, related to this result, I would just say that the screen sizes they were judging were 65 inches, nothing larger, as you currently cannot buy a QD OLED screen larger than 65 inches. So if you were thinking of something larger than that for your living room, it's not going to be, at least in the 4K realm, it's not going to be a Sony A95K. So that would be my only kind of takeaway from that overall. But if a 55 or 65 inch screen is what you're looking for and you want the best, stop right now and just go take a look at the Sony A95K. And like I said, I can't wait to see what they'll be doing with that technology next year with larger sizes. Uh, Now, when we get into the 8K TVs, they were judging screens that were 85 to 88 inches. And for your 8K desires, the 2022 LG Z2 or Z2 8K OLED TV earned the judge's top recommendation. Now, in this shootout, which included that same SDR day and reference mode as well as an HDR reference mode, Sony's Z9K LCD apparently is the bright demon of a TV out there right now as it dominated the daytime mode test. Uh, across the board, it just seemed to like outshoot every other screen they were testing as far as the 8K oh, wow. TVs go. It, it has the light output to just be inspiring so to speak but when it came to the perfect black level of an oled as well as that dark room contrast and rich color in the sdr and the hdr reference modes again in relatively light controlled environments that lg z2 got the nod for being currently the best 8k tv out there and those are not cheap tvs by any means 
I was kind of disappointed not to see Samsung do a little bit better. Again, all of these screens for the 4K and the 8K TVs were all set up in a controlled environment, carefully calibrated uh, and given, uh, giving the judges, you know, really the best shot possible at looking at them in their best light. I don't think there was really truly a loser anywhere in this group, but right. uh, that Sony in terms of the 4K shootout taking just everything for that that those three categories at least was a bit of a surprise to me. It makes me uh, want to go see one in person now, all the more so. We like to see the shiny picture generation boxes. Y'all they make us happy. <laughs> Y'all. You know what else makes us happy? Our Patreons on patreon.com slash avxl. Uh, we'll give a brief shout out. We've, we've been talking about this uh, for a while now. Uh, going through, we started with our very, very first patrons and we're all the way up to January 25th, 2017. Uh, you know, basically going through and thanking all of our patrons for their contributions over the last few years. We appreciate you and uh, your contributions on patreon.com slash avxl make this possible. So big shout out to Ricardo Arroyo, Michael Fiorentino, Calder Huntington, Mike Benazinski, Ruben Ravendron, and Darren West. Thank you, thank, thank you for your support of AVXL. You make the show possible. Uh, we were supposed to do a hangout on Sunday night, uh, but we got kind of hammered. Uh, I started a new job. Rob's got some challenges on a project he's working on, so we're going to reschedule that to next Sunday, which would be the 21st, and you should receive an announcement on that on patreon.com slash AVXL if you uh, are a patron at the 10 or $20 level. And what we do is we, we do an extended hangout, and uh, uh, if it's kind of a short crew that show up for the main hangout we open it up to our five dollars and then all of the rest of our patrons so totally. seriously thank you for being our patron and uh, keep an ear open for next week we're going to do that on discord so if you don't have discord yeah. do yourself a favor and download discord and get an account set up for the hangouts i may be coming back into town that day so i'll try to time it i'll let you know as soon as i know okay we'll we will done. give you an update <laughs> an appropriate update will be made on patreon.com slash avxl should we say we, we you know we do it for the twenty second? We do the twenty second. Hey, I'm I'm down with that. Okay, Monday the twenty second. Yep. Monday night football hasn't right. started yet, so I'm good. Thank you for your understanding. Thank you. Hey, I had a quick follow up regarding a discussion we had a week or two ago about color saturation. Uh-huh. I, I, I went back and listened to that episode, and I really wasn't satisfied with the point I was trying to get across. And quickly, I just wanted to revisit that. If you would uh, humble and indulge me for a moment, uh, <laughs> learn us, learn us, Robert. For visible light, there is no such thing in terms of how we see. There is no such thing sure. as a pure white light. White light that we see is a combination of different wavelengths, or you can think of them as colors of light, that our brain then translates into something that it looks white to me. And the visible spectrum of colors are actual wavelengths of electromagnetic energy from about 380 nanometers to 750 nanometers. And that's approximately from your dark blue, uh, dark violet to the deepest, darkest reds. Now, if you Google the term CIE chart, you'll see a rainbow-colored shark fin-like shape, and its curved outer edge are the laser-like wavelengths of light that can be considered the most pure colors, uh, what they call spectral colors, colors that literally can be described by a single wavelength, or in other words, a monochromatic color. Now, for the most part, our eyes are sensitive to only red, green, and blue wavelengths. While there is a single wavelength of light that we can call yellow, our eyes don't have a specific receptor for detecting a yellow wavelength of light. But if you mix red and green wavelengths of light just right, our brain translates that into something that appears yellow to us. If you look at the subpixels on a TV screen, they are red, blue, and green. That is not a coincidence. Ah, uh, uh, whatever. You're going to say it's all science. <laughs> that's It's why there's a biological basis for the reason we selected red, blue, and green. Now, now, if you plotted that red, blue, and green on that CIE chart, it would produce the vertices of a triangle whose area describes a particular color space. And uh, just quickly sliding off into color space, you often hear me talk about something called BT709. That color gamut is the old school standard used in standard dynamic range, uh, HD video, SD video, pretty much everything that isn't 4K HDR formats like HDR10 and Dolby Vision 
it is that BT709 color gamut. You, uh, the, the CRT TVs we all grew up with, it is very similar. That is the color it has available to it. And the next gamut up or the next largest gamut uh, is something called DCI-P3. That is about 26% larger or more saturated primaries than you have with Rec. 709. And many newer TVs and projectors can actually reproduce that, that P3 color space pretty accurately, mm-hmm. which is cool. And, and finally, currently in our standards of video production, we have BT2020, and that's the largest. That's the granddaddy we're currently shooting for in terms of uh, video production. That is the basis for HDR10 and Dolby Vision. That's about 72% larger than 709, about 37% larger than P3. And effectively, the larger that triangle that I'm trying to describe, the more saturated or pure colors it can contain up to that maximum saturation of a single wavelength. Now, I previously mentioned that there's not a single wavelength for the color white. There are other colors that we perceive in that pink to purple range that are actually not represented by a single laser-like wavelength. And those are called unsaturated colors. Those are actually combinations of blue and red that are then combined within our brains to produce things like pinks and purples. If there is one color gamut that might be my favorite, it is one called Pointer's Gamut. And this was from a researcher named Michael R. Pointer back in the 80s. Basically, uh, to quote, the Pointer's Gamut is an approximation of the gamut of real surface colors as can be seen by the human eye. And what that generally means is that if you took a good light source, a good white light source, Uh, with high CRI, which I'm not going to get into right now, but if you reflected that off of everything you could see in nature to see what its actual color is as we perceive it, it produces a pretty non-standard blob that if you overlaid that on, say, the BT2020 color space, it actually exceeds BT2020. And so, in essence, what I'm basically getting at is that even with BT2020 and its incredibly wide color palette, there are certain specific colors that we would actually need something, a new display technology in order to accurately represent all color we can actually see. And in order to hit something like pointer's gamut, which isn't just a neat little triangle, it actually looks like a blob uh, that's spread out pretty big (laughs) because we're human beings. And it it literally, they came up with this gamut by polling people. It's like, hey, do you see this? Do you see the difference between this shade and this shade or this hue and this hue? And it went through a lot of testing like that to actually determine what colors we can actually see. You would need something, a display of some kind that had more than three primary colors in order to really encapsulate something like right. Pointer's Gamut. And maybe that will be the future in another decade or two. Uh, we'll, we'll go from BT2020 to, I don't know, BT2020 Pointers or something. I, I mean, <laughs> it's it's funny, right? Because the, the article on Pointer's Gamut you link to uh, at tftcentral.co.uk uh, it's it's dense, but it's yeah. fascinating to look at where they've laid out um, Rec 2020 versus Pointer's Gamut uh, against the the CIE 1931 XY chromas chromas chromaticity Chrom- diagram. Perfect. Um, and what what always blows my mind, right, is is you know the the complete Rec 2020 actually covers more colors than we can actually see, um, <laughs> if. You know, everything is lined up properly. That's Um, the funny thing. If you overlay the BT2020 color space uh, with pointers gamut, there are portions of pointers gamut that exceed it. And likewise, there are portions of BT2020 that technically don't exist within our apparently our uh, range of color vision as well. A lot of greens far out at the edge. Yeah. Greens and blues and reds far out at the edge. That's a good point as well. There are two different versions of that CIE color chart that I just mentioned. If you're going to look one up or reference one in particular, uh, the two different ones are the 1931 chart and the 1976 Mm -hmm. chromaticity chart. Uh, Generally speaking, it's more accurate to display your results on a 1976 chart. It has less less error in terms of specific measurements and and where a point can be within a say a particularly defined color uh, it tends to be the more modern version of that so right. if you're if you're gonna publish your color results stick to the 1976 uh u prime v prime chart <laughs> <laughs> please <laughs> but it's all fascinating but yeah uh, give a look to pointers gamut and i'll i'll link that tft central article as well that is a pretty dense read but it's i think 
I think it's accessible to a lot of people in terms of reading through that and getting some good information. And uh, if you want to go down the rabbit hole in terms of color science, that's as good of a place to start as any. Be careful with those rabbit holes. I'm telling you, man. Deep. <laughs> I get caught up in those. <laughs> well, it's a professional choice. Um, it's a lifestyle choice. True. It's a thing. We're nerds. We nerd out. Um, we got a great... Uh, Rob started pulling uh, questions out of our subreddit. And if you're saying to yourself, you guys have a subreddit, I understand exactly where you're coming from. Uh, it is uh, r slash avxl. Makes it reasonably easy to find. Uh, P. Sean posted on an r slash avxl. Anybody recall what were the step-up headphones that Patrick frequently recommends from Dan Clark Audio and Mr. Speaker? And uh, those would be the Aon, and then they replaced the Aon with the Aon 2. Um, there is a big step up from the Sony R7506, which is, you know, I think those are currently selling for a whopping $84 on Amazon. Uh, that is a fantastic headphone to just do a lot of listening on. It is good stuff. That's money uh, I ever very spent. affordable. Thank you. Um, but uh, there's a couple steps up. They have the Aon RT, which is a, a tweaked version of the original Aon headphones from Dan Clark, formerly known as Mr. Speakers. Uh, those are $500, and the Aon 2 sells for a healthy $900. I recommend that. I prefer the closed to the open headphones on those uh, because people and not letting in audio in, and I also think they have a little bit better bass response. But um, there are a lot of really solid headphones so if you find yourself on the headphone upgrade warpath or you're looking to experiment, or you're looking for options, um, I am still amazed by Monoprice product number 8323, the premium hi-fi DJ style over-the-ear pro headphones. Uh, they now come with a mic, uh, which is nuts because they cost $17. I think these were originally a kicker design. Kicker didn't uh, want them anymore, stopped selling them, and Monoprice picked up the rights for them and produced, essentially, I think the most I've seen these for is about $25. Uh, if you buy them direct from Monoprice, they're $17. Uh, it is a shockingly good, inexpensive headphone that you probably won't weep if you lose. Uh, Lauren Dragon over at the Wirecutter has heard more inexpensive earbuds than I'm pretty sure anyone alive. And props to her for dealing with a, I, I got to be honest with you, I did a half dozen, you know, 25 sub 25, $25. I think 25 was like the maximum number. And I picked up like a half dozen of these and there, it, it's amazing how bad a lot of earbuds sound. And I don't mean this to be rude. I'm just literally, you know, uh, just, you know, no high end, no low end, too much low end, not enough high end, uh, you know, distorting at any volume other than just listenable. But she actually found uh, a shockingly good pair of wireless earbuds. They sell for $25, and it's uh, one more's Piston Fit BT. Uh, and if $25 is a little spendy for you, or if you are looking to uh, go wired, uh, there's a piston fit wired version of that that is even less expensive. That is a, if you need a, a decent Bluetooth uh, earbud, don't want to spend a lot of money, it is shockingly good. Uh, go over and use the link over at Wirecutter uh, to, uh, so that Lauren, you know, picks up a little something for her work there. New one that's come out recently based on the Harman Curve, which has a little bit more bass than what would be considered neutral in a headphone, is the AKG Pro Audio K371. Um, if you like a little kick in your bass, those are worth looking at. Avoid, as far as I know, you should avoid the Bluetooth version of the K371. I've heard some reports on that, that there are issues, but the wired version of the K371, uh, if you like bass... Um, it is a fantastic headphone for $110. And uh, I have a set of uh, Biodynamic DT770 Pros. People who talk about headphones usually hate these headphones because these are not audiophile headphones. But I laugh because I was, I was looking at a, uh, a video of a Cajun band putting together an album and i laughed because i saw the sony mdr 7506s and the dt 770 pros in there these are you know these are the kind of headphones you used to find in music studios um you know music studios who understand that drummers sometimes kill things because they're clumsy uh, i'll just be rude and say that but um it's a fairly neutral headphone they have uh, 80 ohm, 32 ohm, and 250 ohm versions. The 80 ohm is great for general use if you're going to be using them portable. The 32 ohm version is probably the way you want to go. About $150. I think my pair is, I would be shocked if they weren't at least 
15, 17 years old. Uh, I'm on my second set of ear pads, and I think I may have finally trashed the the band on them. But these are these are a quality earbud. They're they're not pretty. People well, people either look at them and think like that's fantastically retro. I'm going to wear them with my vintage Pendleton collection and my Red Wing boots that have ever seen mud, uh, or they look at them and they're like, huh, they must sound good because they're ugly as hell. But I love these headphones, and I've been listening to them for years um one of the best bargains in planar magnetics is uh monoprices monolith 5 m565c those are 200 dollars a pair it's a fantastic headphone for the money uh it gives you all of that delicious high-end detail um that you get out of a planar magnetic and then the next step up would be like the aon rt at 500 and the aon 2 at 900 and at that point i can i can kind of you know i could probably put together a justification that would not get me murdered uh by people involved with budgeting uh for the aon 2 but beyond that you know i will be honest with you there are some incredibly flawed two three thousand dollar headphones and more and that's the thing that kind of fascinates me. At some point, you, you go way beyond what your ears can actually hear, and it becomes very much about aesthetic or build quality or the use of exotic materials or all of the above, or right. the fact that it looks like something that was used to keep Frankenstein's ears attached while the glue was setting or whatever. But, I mean, I'll fancy. be honest with you. Some, yeah, <laughs> and there are some fancy, Not beloved that. and revered headphones yeah. that sell for staggering amounts of money that have serious audio flaws. Like, for example, oh, I don't know, they're missing 50 hertz of low end around 100 hertz just drops off like a cliff because you know it's not like drums are down there or something or they have you know no. pronounced in, in any case <laughs> if you're looking for the list uh p sean everybody else out there that's pretty much the entire list of headphones that are currently manufactured and i also say almost all these headphones if you can find a used pair uh are often, especially in the Aeons, the, the Dan Clarks, uh, if you can find a used set of the first series of Aeons or the Aeon 2s, you'll probably save a few hundred dollars over what they cost originally, and you'll have a fantastic headphone that'll last you halfway to forever. Oh, yeah. We got one more quick question off of Reddit. It's about XLR versus RCA. Uh, and CB2 posted, I have a Marantz AV8805 preamp with RCA and XLR outputs. Are there any reason to use XLR if the run can be done with three or six foot cables? I don't know why, but I want to go XLR. And that's because XLR cables look cool and they're spendy. Um, yeah, they do. <laughs> yeah, they are. <laughs> Relatively. Um, if, yeah, I mean, look, if you're in an incredibly noisy environment, you could say that using XLRs do a better job of rejecting noise. However, so do the, uh, you know, most, your Marantz shouldn't be picking up any noise off the RCA cables. Um, that said, uh, I have talked to uh, people that, that make a living selling some pretty spendy home theater gear. And I mention that because, you know, the person in question I'm thinking of, uh, his degree is from MIT. He spent a lot of years doing touring audio, and he cheerfully will make a home theater that costs $2 million if you will cut him a check. And uh, he will build it in a way that you do not hear, you know, the, the idling diesel trucks uh, from the warehouse across the street, right? Uh, it just takes a whole lot of concrete and a whole lot of patience. But the short answer is, generally speaking, it runs under 25 feet in the vast majority of situations. You will have no audible benefits between XLR and RCA. The speaker should have an XLR input on it, or output, or input. Yeah, I had that right. Anyway. This is going between the preamp and the amplifiers. Oh, 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 never mind. Yes, I should read the question. Because <laughs> I have seen speakers with XLR inputs or outputs. Outputs, inputs? Yeah. I'm getting that mixed up today. That's anyway. Like Martin Logan's Plugs. in particular. I've seen plenty <laughs> of uh plenty of speakers with that kind of a setup. And yeah, it's like, well, you had XLR on both ends. Why why do anything else? Right. But yeah, if you're dealing with the yeah, preamps to to amps, I hear you. Yeah, yeah this you know what? I mean essentially this is <laughs> be quiet. this is a thirteen point two channel uh home theater preamp and processor. Um, got it. it requires you to use outboard amplification because there's no amps built in if, if memory serves yeah, look i will cheerfully tell you to, to go by you know rca short answer is you don't need xlr longer answer if you want to use xlr by all means uh, you know this is also one of those places where uh, blue jeans cable know, com. Use, yeah i was gonna say like go to blue jeans cable um <laughs> They make great RCA cables. They will make XLR cables from you. 
Um, they will do it out of professional grade wire, the kind of stuff that's used in studio. Uh, I will also say I, I would bet pretty good money that you could A-B test XLR versus RCA with a bunch of, you know, uh, RCA cables from Amazon Basics or uh, Monoprice not hear a difference. But, you know, if you have several thousand dollars tied up in your application and your processor, by all means, feel free to go over to Blue Jeans Cable and get some very nice cables that are very well made from a, from a thoughtful crew that has lots of information on their website. And a variety of They're colors and by the cable way. qualities and beautiful interconnects. <laughs> God, I yeah, love yeah. looking through that site. <laughs> Yeah, and they're like acoustically welded on there too. Their cable manufacturing is top notch. Indeed. I think they call it, do they call it welding? I don't know if they do it for their RCA cables, but for their speaker cables, they ultrasonically weld the connectors onto the cable. They have a really fancy machine that uses sound <laughs> to join the cable and the connector. It's good stuff. Mm. Hey, I want to bring it down, uh, kind of a sad note, uh, but pour one out for Ann Hesh. Tragic car accident this week, uh, and uh, to her credit, she's an organ donor, and her family wanted to make sure that, that her wishes and that could be fulfilled. Uh, but if you haven't seen her, especially, uh, there's if you've ever seen Wag the Dogs, worth watching, especially for Ann Hesh's role in that. Um, she was in Donnie Brasco, Six Days, Seven Night, a whole lot of movies, some spectacular television in the last decade. Uh, all of it's worth watching. Um you know, this is a woman who uh, got into a relationship with Ellen DeGeneres, who's like 11 years older, and it trashed her Hollywood career. Uh, I think she said she didn't do a studio picture for 10 years, and she was almost immediately fired from a $10 million picture deal. So this is a woman who uh, came out as who she was and got hammered for it. So a shout-out to an extraordinary actress and uh and her loss. Uh, that's a bummer. It really is. Um, on a more cheerful note, if you've been avoiding The Sandman on Netflix because you just hate to see your favorite comic books turned into movies or you're a little leery about that, especially on Neil Gaiman stuff, um, I'm only a few episodes in, but wow, what a spectacular piece of work uh, from the crew working on that. Um, if you're a Sandman fan, do not fear watching it watching the series on Netflix. They've, they're doing a pretty spectacular job so far. If you think I'm dead wrong on that, do us a favor, email askatavxl.com and correct me. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Or make other suggestions, too. I'm always looking for new content, particularly on yeah. that platform that I uh, have the full HD plan for, 4K streaming with Dolby Vision, Dolby Atmos support. Yeah. And I'm always, always looking for good content there. Otherwise, I'm going to go back and watch The Witcher season two yet again. <laughs> as I as I wait patiently for season three, I think what is it next year sometime? Yeah, I give up trying to keep up with it all. There's so much. Yeah. All right. With that, ladies and gentlemen, if you got a question for us, email ask at avxl.com or tweet at Robert Heron at Patrick Norton or at avxl. And uh, with that, I'm Patrick Norton. I am Robert Heron. We'll catch you next week on AVXL.